Are you listening to this while yomping through a park? Or are you currently cosily curled up with a cuppa? I know lockdown and the depths of winter have made the latter far more appealing. Unless you have a boisterous dog or willpower of steel, it can be tempting to give in to winter torpor, even though we know our bodies need to move. But it's not just our bodies that crave movement. When we get our heart rates up, we change our brains too. And while we've known for years that exercise helps stave off heart disease and cancer, it also protects us against depression and dementia. In fact, it's often said that if exercise were a pill, it would be one of the most successful medicines on the market. To talk about the science of movement and its impact on our minds, today's guest is Caroline Williams. Welcome to Nonfic Pod, your home for bitchin' nonfiction. has this thesis that we're cognitively engaged athletes and I have to admit that some days I feel neither cognitively engaged or athletic but do you ever find that that when you're blocked sometimes just physically moving can get things moving? Absolutely and often with story ideas or problems with narratives or flow I do find that getting up and walking does that I don't know I'm really interested to hear what you guys talk about in this do you do you talk about the relation between movement and writing we do actually we talk about the fact that as uh our brachiating ancestors brachiating is a good word coming right up uh were swinging through the trees the same parts of their brain that we used to plan getting through the trees without coming a cropper are still used for our kinds of cognitive planning now which was an absolute revelation to me you know despite the stuff I do already know about how the brain works this intimate relationship between movement and cognition was absolutely fascinating so let's crack on and hear from Caroline Caroline Williams was going to be a PE teacher before being seduced by neuroscience. She spent several years researching the connection between movement and the mind. As a science writer and broadcaster, she says that her aim is to learn new and exciting things and share them in the most entertaining way she can think of. And Move, which comes out in April, definitely fits that bill. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you for having me. There's a tendency to think of the brain and body as distinct and that the body mainly exists to move the brain around. But you make a really compelling case that the brain mainly exists to move the body around. What was it that persuaded you that that's the case? I came across the work of a Colombian neuroscientist called Rodolfo Linas. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his, his name, but that's how it's spelled. And he made the case that uh, through the example of a sea squirt. These are really interesting little animals because when they are in their sort of tadpole juvenile form, they have very basic nervous system and a sort of a ganglion, which is like brain. And it uses this to sort of swim around the ocean, trying to find somewhere good to settle because they want to find somewhere to attach glue themselves essentially by their heads and then spend the rest of their life sort of filter feeding in this idyllic sounding life. But the first thing they do when they have found this spot to live the rest of their lives is to digest their entire nervous system and they never make a decision about anything ever again. And so Linas made this example, he used this to say, well, the only point of having a brain is so that you can inform your movements in the world because the world is a dangerous place and you might get eaten and you want to choose the best place where you have the best chance of survival. So that's why you 
you need a brain. That's why you need senses. That's why you need to bring this stuff together to make decisions about what you're going to do with your life. But as soon as this little sea squirt attached and is never going to move again, you don't need a brain and brains take a lot of energy to run. So the whole thing just gets reabsorbed and no need anymore. So he used this as an example of evolutionary speaking. The whole point of a brain is to inform our movements in the world, to enhance our survival or to get to places where there are rewards to be had. And in terms of the rewards of feeling bright and breezy in the brain, boosting our cognition. What's better for us? Is it an hour in the gym or a good brisk walk? Climbing a tree or lifting weights? If only there was like a one weird trick sort of answer to say, right, this is what you need to do. Forget all the rest of it. There are different benefits from lots of things. I think going back to the cliche, what are what our bodies evolved to do? They evolved to move against gravity. So anything that involves getting up, moving against gravity, because that stimulates your bones, your muscles, increases strength. There's this really weird stuff that happens when you move against gravity. Your bones release a hormone called osteocalcin, which talks directly to the brain and and increases uh, improved memory and it just keeps you alert. So there are all these good reasons why getting up and moving are good. Having physical strength has been quite clearly linked to self-esteem, to confidence, to feeling capable in general in life. And so there isn't really one way to do it, but as long as you're sort of hitting the, so in the, in the book I talk about, you know, these, these buttons that you should hit. So synchronized movement is really important for feeling bonded to other people and tackling loneliness. Strength is important for self-esteem. Core strength is linked to the stress control system. Moving forward helps you feel like you're getting somewhere. So there's, there's all kinds of different ways that moving can affect the way you think and the way you feel but there isn't one thing we should all be doing but I think mindlessly pumping weights yeah it improves your strength but I don't think it hits enough of the buttons to make me personally want to go and do it I'd much rather go for a nice long walk and throw some sticks or jump off some logs or something but that's just me personally the book talks about various forms of movement and the ways that as you just outlined have these various impacts not just on the body but on our cognition on our mood on our self-esteem I was really thrilled with the chapter where you make the point that dancing is very compelling because of our search for meaning in patterns. Uh, What is it about dancing and music that makes us feel so compelled to move? Yeah, dancing is fascinating. And once I started off down that road, there were so many ways in which it's key to what makes us the creatures that we are. You know, no other animal makes music and dances to it. Why is that? There's this great essay by Tekken Sofi. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right either. Um, But the title of the essay is Why Don't Dogs Dance? They've been evolving with us for 10,000 years. Why haven't they picked up on this idea that, hey, music makes you want to move? And there is something very, very human about it. And so part of it comes down to the way that our bodies and our brains sort of work together. So our brains work out where our body is in space and synchronize our movements with the information that's coming in through our senses. So when we move, especially when we're moving with other people, there's research that suggests that our concept of where our body begins and ends and where the other person begins and ends start to get melded together because the information that's coming in from our senses is, well, we're moving like this and they're moving like this and we're doing it at the same time. We are sort of one and the same, which I think is a really lovely idea. You know, you can imagine people who don't get on at all, who have nothing in common, dancing together and and suddenly you, you feel like you're both human in this world together which is a really nice thing yeah, the power of synchronicity reminded me of the rubber hand illusion which you may have come across the idea that if you stroke someone's arm and a rubber simulacrum of their arm at the same time and then go to hit 
the rubber arm, they, they, <laughs> they will get very upset. This idea that you have absorbed by the fact that something's happening at the same time with the same rhythm, uh, is enough for you to extend your, your sense of self to include that rubber arm. The idea that it also extends to include the people that you're dancing with, I found very, very exciting. And I mean, if this even happens in babies, they've done studies with one year olds where researchers have bounced them on their knee, either sort of in time to the music or out of the time to the music. And the, the little toddlers will be more likely to help the person who was bouncing them if they bounce them in time. It's just like, we, we, it makes us cooperate. It makes us feel as one. It's so adorable. I've written about toddlers before and they're actually not selfish, horrible monsters. Um, they're actually very helpful. You know, you drop something, a toddler will immediately go and help pick it up. Um, and so that cooperation is enhanced if we move together in time. Yes, yeah. And when it comes to the other end of our life, when we're trying to stop our brains degrading and becoming sort of sea slug-like, movement is very good at helping prevent ageing in the brain as well as the body. What is it that's going on there? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. So you've got all these, you know, there are lots of things that are linked with reducing your chances of dementia, so, you know, like having social connections, good diet but but exercise is a really important part of that and moving your body is a really important part of that and part of that comes down to so there's studies going on at the moment with this hormone osteocalcin that's released from the bones during exercise and we know that that does decline with age so it's almost bad news in a way that you have to do more to get the same effect so i think the more weight bearing exercise you can do um, especially in middle age this seems to be a very important time to to actually keep this stuff going um it's just from the time you're most busy and most exhausted that's when you should be also getting more stuff but also with regards to exercise in the brain it does all kinds of great stuff to your physiology it gets um hormones released that then make more connections happen in your brain it, it enhances blood flow to the brain all the things that the brain needs to function happen better when you're on the move because when what your body is doing when your body is moving it tells your brain stuff's happening you know we are cognitively engaged athletes as one scientist puts it you need to do the moving bit to make the cognitive bit work so the more you can do basically the better yeah when having read that i'm now having in the midst of homeschool you know a sort of five minute dance party with the the four-year-old and the six-year-old or throwing them up in the air this part of me going this is not just good for our mood i'm also staving my inevitable setting yeah. off my inevitable cognitive decline um i'm not sure it's working yet but that could just be you know, it's, it's hard to tell in the moment isn't it like right let's all go out and bounce <laughs> on a trampoline quick it'll make us feel better but yeah yeah you mentioned in the book about the the slumping posture or what i think the the neuroscientist involved called it a a contractive posture yes. and how that then tends to do things like slow cognition and depressed mood and I'm thinking because of everyone being on top of each other during lockdown a lot of us have been doing quite a bit of work from the bed yeah and I don't feel like Marcel Proust working from the bed I feel like I, I feel like a sea squirt is yeah. there something about you know this lockdown syndrome that some of it is literally just that we're not sitting up at a desk or striding over to go and collar someone in the office is there something about this return, return. to mollusk-like that is possibly doing something to our mood and to our cognition. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's also the fact that nobody's watching most of the time when Lester on a Zoom call. You know, you can just sort of flop around and go, oh, this is rubbish, I can't be bothered. You know, you don't have to have this professional facade that you're 
up and typing and you know you know what you're doing although on the other hand you know I've been a freelancer for a really long time and working at home and it is in some ways freeing because you can you know I'm constantly fidgeting around in my chair I've got my legs crossed now because I'm only four foot eleven and my feet don't touch the floor it means you, you do have the freedom to move around so sometimes I will sort of sit on the floor and type sometimes stand up and it also offers a freedom to say well stuff this I'm going for a walk to kind of get you back into that feeling a bit more alert so it's a double-edged sword really this whole being at home locked because it can really weigh heavy and you can sit in bed if you want to but yes as a long-term home worker I can say the most important thing is get out your pjs and pretend it's a proper job (laughs) (laughs) I remember someone giving me that advice when I first moved to full-time freelancing make sure you get out of the house at least once a day and yeah, yeah, in terms of mood and cognition, it does make a difference. Yeah, I have a very hyperactive dog who insists, you know, he basically mentally tortures me, tortures me unless I take him out twice a day. And, you know, when I first started freelancing, I also had a dog back way in the days in my sort of 20s. And yeah, it, otherwise, because I was at the time working in my bedroom and had a desk in my room. And the only way to make separation between the bed and the desk was to walk with the dog, come back, make a cup of tea, sit down and um, and then you can mentally separate it. But I'm sure that the walk and the moving forward thing, that's one thing I found really interesting with the, with the walking chapter, that there's psychology studies that are about as you move forward through space, that gives you sort of a sort of a mental sense of progress as well so it's not just that you're literally getting somewhere but you feel like you're getting somewhere as well and that allows you to stop dwelling on the past um you know it's much easier to ruminate and get down in the dumps when you're sitting still and staring at your screen and going ah i need to write 500 words today ah but it's much better just to get out get walking and suddenly you find your brain you start thinking about the future and you come up with ideas that you've never thought of and i spent a lot of time walking the dog with my phone out typing up ideas in my notes and and then reading them when I get home and going, oh yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I thought. So yes, getting up, getting out is definitely the way forward. I, I found the line that you drew between uh, our ancestors that learnt to brachiate. Am I saying that right? But swinging through the trees by by their arms and needing to be aware of the range of possibilities in front of them. You know, which branch will support my weight? Which one gets me closer to where I need to be? And that idea that we are cognitively engaged athletes because of this need to navigate in three dimensions. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? That's kind of a, a fairly new idea that the you know the part of the brain that was once thought just to do movements it also does thinking planning emotional control all these sort of things so it's a bit of the brain that looks like it's dangling off the bottom if you look at a diagram little sort of cauliflower type thing but it's got these hyper fast connections all over the brain and it just sort of fine tunes our behavior and our movements and so there's something about moving planning thinking um feeling are all kind of woven together so yeah if we, if we sit around trying to do the thinking and the feeling and the planning bit without the movement then we're you know it's not i'm not saying it can't be done clearly it can but but we're missing a trick you know we're, we're selling ourselves short a little bit and you'd mentioned as well the fact that it's not just cognitively that movement helps us that you talk to a few people in your book that are using movement as essentially as therapy and my co-host Georgie talks about diving as a a means of dealing with anxiety and PTSD and so on when it comes to I know myself as someone who suffered from depression getting out of bed can be the hardest thing possible but there is good evidence isn't there that movement of, of many sorts is actually very helpful from an emotional point of view yeah, I mean, it's a, it's kind of almost a cruel trick of depression that it makes you want to hide under the duvet and just like, leave me alone, I don't want to move. But actually, that's a thing that could help. So there, there was one study I came across that I thought was quite interesting, that one sign that medication for depression was kicking in with voluntary movement became well, easier, I guess. It, it increased voluntary movement. So 
anything that can get you going. I mean, I spoke to Marcus Scottney, who's a, an extreme ultra marathon runner who's suffered from depression his whole life. And somehow he's managed to run and do two day mountain marathons. And he, you know, he says going forward shows me that I can go forward. Yeah. I mean, the hard bit is kicking yourself into action in the first place. And I don't have an easy answer for that. I wish I did, but, um, yeah, movement definitely, definitely helps. So whether it's, somebody who has suffered depression before and doesn't want to go back there then you know as a preventative measure that it can definitely help you can follow caroline on twitter at at science caroline and at carolinewilliams.net her new book move is available to pre-order now and comes out on april the 15th hello you're listening to the free as you like wonderful mainstream fantastico episode of non-fic pod with burn and cod but there is something missing from this episode it's a little segment called shit i wish i'd known and if you want to hear it you need to sign up to our patreon account be one of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash nonficpod and for a small monthly donation you can access each one of these fantastic little nuggets that will help you understand the authors better and understand the craft that's patreon.com forward slash nonficpod thank you What are you reading at the moment, Cod? I have recently received my latest copy of The Author Magazine, which I believe you also get from the Society of Authors. Yes. Um, and anyone listening to this who is serious about their writing and their practice and isn't a member of the Society of Authors yet, they're not sponsoring us or anything. This is a, this is a heartfelt message, a declaration of respect and admiration with the Society of Authors. They are very good at protecting author rights. You can go to them with any questions about fees, contracts, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the perks of being a member, apart from the fact that you get a card that says author on it, oh, lol. That gets, that gets you a discount in Waterstones. It does. I always forget to use it. And, and on, uh, and many other bookshops book as well, then. Not, just, not just Waterstones. Even the indies. And even the indies, some brilliant. of them. Um, but yeah, in the latest issue of the author, there's a, I don't know if you've read it yet, Bern, but there's an article in it by Robert H. Frank, who is one of the economists who developed the winner take all theory about how it, com competition gets increasingly scarce. The better you're doing, you just rise to the top. And he's written about it in relation to authors and publishing mm -hmm. and kind of examining this idea that examining the process of how some authors just get big straight away. And they, it's like a stone rolling down the hill, gathering all the expensive money moss. And whereas the other authors are just kind of flinging away in the background. And why is that? Why does, why does publishing focus? Why does it work in that way? Why is it that one of the quotes I thought was really interesting in this article? Um, he talks about how publishing new works from unknown authors and I'm putting unknown in quotes because it's it seems a bit ridiculous there's so many unknown authors who are known to many people but yeah from the firm's perspective publishing new works is like buying cheap lottery tickets so this idea that publishers just accumulate they're like oh yeah we'll buy yours we'll try a bit of yours we'll buy it see if you know we'll publish your book throw it out see if anybody likes it 
If they do, great. If they don't, well, we didn't spend much money on you anyway. And I find found that quite depressing. <laughs> But not surprising. It's certainly up there with the shit I wish I'd known before I became an author. Is that particularly with the larger publishing houses, it is very much a numbers game. Um, I'm really lucky in that I'm published by a fairly indie uh, place and my editor has always been sort of bang on side getting as much promotion and as much activity as possible for both books and there's an amazing publicity team there and I'd sort of taken that for granted until I spoke to other authors who have worked just as hard and have written books that are just as good nay better than swearing is good for you but who just don't have that much love from their publisher and so we really need to do I think a shit I wish I'd known special talking about the ways in which people manage to fight their way to the top of the attention tree uh, if you don't have your publicist working away for you. Because quite often, overnight successes take decades to come. There is no such thing as an overnight success. Uh, But I think a lot of authors are not prepared for just how much work is involved in getting your name known, you know, appearing at all sorts of events. I mean, when swearing came out, I would go to the opening of an envelope. Yeah, and it is amazing how much then... When you start popping up all over the place, someone else will notice you, say, oh, I heard you on this podcast or I saw you at this particular festival. And then that leads to another invitation, which leads to another invitation. And these things do, as you say, roll like a stone. You you do gather moss, but it is hard work. It is as hard work as the writing. And until recently, it has been fairly difficult for anyone who wasn't incredibly mobile, who couldn't go on literal book tours. So kind of excluded from that, you know, if you're Stephen King or Bill Bryson and you can go on the road for three months every time you bring up out a new book, that's one thing. Uh, if you're new person who isn't necessarily getting paid for these appearances or is getting paid something nominal, that's not a valid, easy choice for you to make. So how about you and me, Cod, we write something, uh, we do an episode on how to get some of that magic moss yourself, how to, how to kickstart your own damn momentum. That sounds good. I like the sound of that. It'd be, be interesting to see because it's a bit of a, an amerta in a way, but it's almost like authors don't want to talk about how hard it is. And, and because it's, it's basically putting your hand up and saying, yeah, actually my publisher was kind of interested in my book, but not interested enough to promote me. So that probably means my book's not that good. Ergo, I'm probably not that good a writer. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, but actually when you start scratching away at the surface, there are so many authors, even the big name authors sometimes who, you know, prize winning national, international prize women, winning authors who say, well, yeah, actually, I've, I've been neglected quite a lot. Nonfic Pod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Byrne, Georgie Cod, and Mike Wire. false modesty you know mine was always aimed to be the kind of book that you would sort of dip into next to the toilet not a life-changing
you can really help us by rating, reviewing and sharing Pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 